Hi, I'm Professor Beckstraw. And I'm Professor Eric Bronson, and you're listening to Prison Breakdown. Two, three, break! Eat the spoilers fun, but we're gonna bust out of here! Two, three, break! Welcome back to Prison Breakdown. Ahoy. How are you? Outstanding. How are you? Outstanding. I'm doing great. Great. It's a gorgeous day out outside out here in beautiful Rhode Island. So, great day to be locked inside doing a podcast <laughs> when it's gorgeous yeah, outside. It's, you know these days are numbered. There are, there are a few left in the year. Yeah. But uh, before we get started today, I realized last time that on this reboot of the podcast, we forgot to introduce ourselves with our backgrounds. So, Eric, will you please do me the honors? Oh, absolutely. Of telling us about your background in corrections. Absolutely. So, I started off a long time ago at Green River Correctional Complex um, in Kentucky, in Central City, Kentucky, as a, a co op um, classification and treatment officer, working with the full time classification and treatment officers there. And spent my time. Working with them, learning how to classify inmates, reclassify them because they have something they have to do every every six months in the state by by law. Um, make sure that they're being held at the right custody level. After that, I, I worked at a mental health facility for a year, a uh, private facility. So that place was uh, was uh, full of wonderful experiences along the same lines. While the, while there was much more treatment based, there was a whole lot of the of correctional side as well because we we had people there that were sentenced uh by the state uh, or or local governments to be held there for a given time period before um they were sent to either juvenile detention or a jail or a prison whatever it might be um and then there were some people who were there who were self-commits to, to try and get rehab but and then after that i just you know hey figured out i wanted to uh wanted to teach rather than work inside the institution. So I just went ahead and studied and got my PhD at Bowling Green State University uh, focusing on corrections. And that's ever since then, I've been in and out of prisons like crazy, but not the way you normally think of that, of that little phrase. Um, been lucky enough to visit hundred, you know, over a hundred prisons and all over the world. So um, uh, yeah, it's been a fun ride. What, what about you? Yeah, I, I want to get back to that in a second because that's crazy that you've been to over a hundred prisons. Like that that is a degree of access to which I I'm astonished. Well, you gotta remember when 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 you were still young, <laughs> I was already I had to they used to be a lot easier to get into. I promise you they were. Like in the nineties and early two thousands. Um we it was very easy to write a uh I write an email to a warden or uh, uh, give a call and get get a class into an institution. So, you know, I've been into a whole lot of the prisons in Ohio, Kentucky, Texas. It's where I did a, a bunch of my research where I was interviewing inmates in, in Texas and um, 
and in Ohio. And so I spent a lot of, and both of those are pretty large prison systems, have a lot of prisons in those states. And they, they were very open. It's, it's only recently where I think we've run into um, staff not, you know, the, the upper administration at, at these institutions not wanting tours. It, used, it seemed like it used to be, hey, we, we need to educate the, the public. And so letting in student groups or professors who are interested in this and seeing what's going on. That used to be something that used to be pretty easy. Now it's a little bit tougher. And I think it just has to do with, you know, lack of staff numbers. I mean, when, when you were working at the institution, you know, you didn't want to put up with a tour. It's just, you know, it's just taking you away from your, from your duties to deal with, you know, walking people around an institution. Um, and so it's, it's just, I think it's a little bit tougher. That's true. I, I honestly don't think I went on a tour of the institution I worked at until I had left. And I, I had not even seen a tour come through because I was not on day shift when you would get the tours. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Goes against your, your night your night owl lifestyle, huh? <laughs> Hoot. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And with that, I'll, I'll introduce my background. I'm I'm Professor Beckstraw. I'm a former corrections officer or corrections deputy, I should say, out of Snohomish County, Washington. I worked for the Snohomish County Sheriff's Office Corrections Bureau for two and a half years. And following that, I've been doing research and uh, working as a prison classroom instructor for the past, what would it be, eight years? And it's only the, the, earlier this year I had to give up being a prison instructor and looking to get back into doing more research in, in prisons. So I, I've got 10 years of experience between corrections deputy, research, and teaching. And so I've gotten to see all these different sides. And I've probably gotten to tour 10 different institutions out here in the Northeast, but I don't have anywhere near the wealth of experience. I think over 100. And, and of these 100, how many of these are private tours where you just knock, knock? Hey, I'm a professor. Can I tour? Well, there, there's been a few of those um, where you're like, hey, I'm, I'm going to this town. I'm going to go see if I can get in to see this prison. Um, and, you know, say, hey, I'm a professor and I just want to get in there. And a lot of times they're, you know, when it's a smaller group, they're, they're very willing to, to take you in. I, I know there were one of the ones I saw in uh, one of the prisons I went to in Ashtabula, Ohio, the, uh, was a private prison and they were more than willing to hey come on in come see what we're doing here at uh this at our private correctional facility and uh check out our dog pilot program um and it's interesting not long after i i visited they scrapped a bunch of the programs and the dog pilot program to save money you know and uh but it's just of course they, they were very willing to hey yeah come on in um so it, it seems it seems like if you know if you're a professor who's going in they'll they'll let you in pretty quick um even still but it's it's uh it's not as easy as it used to be getting in so yeah that's something i just haven't even tried to do up here in the northeast you and i we, we should do some some more prison tours ourselves and and, and then we can area. come back and yeah then we can come back and report here and talk about you know, these wonderful prisons like the like the ones we're going to be going to very soon but um yeah we should do that so what what in the world got you interested because that that's always a fun topic how in the heck did you get interested in corrections at all oh wow uh so i had wanted to be a police officer for years went to undergrad 
got my degree in psychology, realized it was 2008. The economy is not great. They're not hiring police officers hardly anywhere at the time. So I thought, all right, I'll go back, get my master's. I went back to get my master's. And at which point I realized I actually liked the educational process. It wasn't taking a class for the sake of checking a box anymore. Mm -hmm. It was, oh, I'm interested in learning about this. And so during the process, I got into doing some research. I, I substitute taught a little bit and I thought, oh, maybe, maybe I'll go back for my PhD eventually. And as um, during, during my master's, I, I interned for Snohomish County Sheriff's Office on the law enforcement side with uh, some of the road deputies. And there was no road deputy jobs opening up, but towards the end of my internship, we saw an opening for corrections deputy spots. And I was encouraged to join by, by some of my mentors there. Ended up joining up, realized during the course of my two and a half years as a corrections deputy that, hey, maybe our correctional system's kind of broken and maybe there's some, some issues in law enforcement as well that need addressing. So I thought, maybe, maybe I'll go back now. And yeah. ended up going back to get my PhD. That's fantastic. How my, about yourself? My, what, what yeah, my little journey was, it, it's, it's fun because it just, it started, you know, I was, when I was in high school, I, you know, was interested in the criminal justice system. Um, maybe from a different side because, you know, from being delinquent so often as a juvenile. But, uh, so I was reading books that were, uh, you know, about the criminal justice system, about true crime type. Of, and I read uh, Peter Early's book, uh, The Hot House, Life Inside Leavenworth Prison. And from that moment, I was like, oh, I want to be a book. warden at the federal prison, at a federal prison. This is what I want to do. And from there, is it, it, it's always, I've always been fascinated. You know, my degrees are all in sociology. And, you know, when I, I was able to get into prison and see that, boy, there really is a subculture within here that, you know, is, is, is very, very interesting to me. Um, and just fascinating. I, I too, it was one of those, once I got to college, I was just like, Hey, you know, this learning process is fantastic. You know, high school wasn't all that fun, but, <laughs> but boy, college was, and not, not just for the, you know, for the parties and everything else, but, um, definitely for the, for the classes, you know, that it, it, it was completely different than the learning experience prior to that. And so, when you're able to take classes on deviant behavior and criminal behavior, uh, the prison systems, it's, it, you know, it's fascinating all of a sudden. And, and that just drew me in and I just fell into that world. Right. Yeah. I, I, I took a criminology class in high school. I, I'm thankful we even had one. And that, that was what drew me in in the first place. And I actually sent the teacher an email a couple of years ago just to say, hey, thanks for doing what you do. And he, he's still around. He's still teaching. Uh, but I, I love that he was passionate enough to teach a good enough class in high school to get people involved. Alaska is not known for its educational systems, as I'm <laughs> sure you might be aware. We are, I believe, currently 49th in the country. That's oh, really? Out of 50. That's that, well. I was yeah. going to say you had a criminology class. I, you know, I I ended up at a Catholic high school uh, mainly for its sports programs, but um, it's just. You know, we didn't <laughs> for the stay for the religion. <laughs> yeah, stay for the religion. You know, we were taking classes on, you know, scripture and my, the the one that drove me nuts. It, there was my senior year. We had a class on commitment. Okay, so <laughs> yeah, it was. It just, and here's the great thing: the big the big project for the class was you were supposed to get paired up with you know someone of the opposite sex who you were supposed to pretend you're married to and 
plan out all this bullshit <laughs> about, you know, about being able to buy a house and cars and all kinds of crap. Well, the, the group, the class I was in didn't have equal number of males and females. So they just said, well, <laughs> go ahead and plan this all out yourself. It was, it was so bad. It was so bad. I'm like, you know, so I of course turned in a project that was just like, well, I'm not doing anything on kids. I can't have kids by myself. I'm not doing this because I, you know, it just, you know, I was like, this is ridiculous. I'm in a class about commitment and I can't do the project because I'm not paired up with somebody. Um, yeah, it, it was, it was dreadful. So, um, I wish I would have had a class about criminology or prison or something it would have been a hell of a lot more exciting. I, I love that rather than pair up two males together, which they're, right. they're so afraid to do. <laughs> no, do it on your own. Yeah. What an abomination that would have That's been. That's what right? commitment is. Yeah. They'd rather you be alone forever than gay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was it was so dreadful, uh, but we we were also the class I was in. We were terrible. We had one of the nuns there. You know, the nuns are able to kind of select their names that they go by in the eyes of the Lord. And we had one that was named Sister Saint Anne, and of course, we'd say her name quickly, and, you know, Sister Satan. Um, <laughs> you know, got in a little bit of trouble for that, but <laughs> yeah. Oh boy! Wow did did you get in trouble much as a youth too? Oh. Like like at this Catholic school, how much trouble was the, there the, again? The trouble was really before then. It was elementary and junior high. High school, I kind of, I kind of settled down a little bit because again, I was focusing on sports. <laughs> you know, I was hopeful to get a, a a scholarship for wrestling or football, and um, yeah, that you know, that there was a lot better behavior at the at the high school level but uh you know it's uh, still very interesting world of deviant behavior um drew me in in college so what about in alaska did did, did you two get into trouble in alaska is there much tomfoolery going on up there I'll let producer Britt take this one. I I I was mostly in trouble for being late to stuff. Like, all, all my detentions came from lateness. Uh, <laughs> Am I not? It, not I was gonna say it, it doesn't surprise anyone. Time management is still not my my best forte, but I'm working on it. Fair, fair. Um, Britt, yeah, yeah. I was I was always in trouble at school, and uh, then also I guess to give my background on uh, prisons and correctional facilities, I have. Uh, personally toured the uh, the holding cells of uh, both Wasilla's jail and Anchorage's jail and Denver's jail um, you know I've mm -hmm. uh, I've been around a little bit uh -huh. but facilities. never convicted thankfully I've always been able that's to, what I was I was gonna ask convicted. for these extended convicted, tours even... of those holding facilities thankfully only uh -huh. for uh -huh. around a night Good. so you know yeah uh -huh. oh, which was the best of the three uh, definitely Wasilla's. Wasilla, Alaska's was like a weird nightmare. Um, like I walk in there and like the two other guys in the holding cell, one is covered entirely in hay and dirt. And I'm like, what? what's the story here? Turns out that he was like, uh, he broke into someone's house while they were like away and he was just like staying there and the police came to find him. And so he went and hit up in like an attic in a barn where there was a bunch of hay and stuff like that 
And so he got covered in hay. <laughs> yeah, it, it took me hours to figure out that mystery. It was oh, one of the one of the nights That's... I was working at the mental health facility. We had someone covered in something much worse. He he had covered him. Yeah, he had covered himself in oh, his own no. feces. Yeah, oh. not, not fun. So, true story. I got a commendation for uh, th- we had a gentleman cover himself in his feces, and at at the jail. He was in booking, covered himself in his feces in a holding cell, and yours truly volunteered to walk him to the shower. He needed an escort. <laughs> so I got a commendation in my file for that one. Um, I I watched a guy take a dump in front of a room mm. full of 14 uh-huh. other men. Uh, are we talking on story. the floor, or we're talking just like in, in a toilet? Because there's, No, no yeah. they had one toilet. Yeah, one toilet in the holding cell. And we're all trapped in there for like six or eight hours in a hundred degree heat in the middle of Denver in the summer. And this guy has to go. And so what are you going to do? You're not going to hold it in or shit your pants. That's going to piss everyone off, you know? And so, you know, sit on the throne. It's a boss it's, move. It is. Well, it shows it's, that it's you're comfortable in the environment, move, which is, you know, put, moving you up in the hierarchy there immediately. I... I I I don't think he was asserting <laughs> dominance. I think he just he, he wasn't take a shit, he wasn't maintaining so. eye contact with certain people inside you. <laughs> no, 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 he was not. He, he was not. He looks you right in the eye the entire yeah. time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just points at you. That would have been a move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, sh- shall we move on to the topic of the day? Well, which is contraband. Ooh. Before that, we've got uh, something yes, else. Yes, we think. have some news off the razor wire, don't we? Fresh news, hot off the razor wire. All right. On Monday morning, we had four inmates from Bibb County in Georgia escape from a jail. And these aren't just four simple little inmates. One of them uh, is being held was being held for uh, processing on murder charges. So we got some serious individuals that were escaped, but the inmates made their way out of the Bibb County Detention Center, which is uh, just south of uh, Atlanta. Uh, County seat is Macon, but it's a decent-sized county. They made their way through a damaged window and cut a fence. Um, And they, uh, when they got outside, there was... uh, blue Dodge Challenger waiting them, waiting for them. So this is a well-planned escape. And the reason why it's well-planned is because it was successful. But one of the inmates, who was 52, was being held on murder charges. Another one was being held on aggravated assault. Third, on firearms and drug trafficking. And the fourth one, it doesn't mention what the charges are or the conviction. But um, they are still, as of four days later, still on the run. And last night, the FBI in Georgia has offered $25,000 for information leading to their capture. Um, So uh, I think we might look into uh, a little bit of uh, maybe our sending our students to be bounty hunters down in Georgia, see if they can catch somebody, make a little extra cash. Maybe we can you know, if we start doing this, we can find it as a way to help fund our students. 
school of justice <laughs> studies <laughs> fund ourselves <laughs> yeah uh, <laughs> this is a, wait, where are we bounty hunters <laughs> this is this is scholarship opportunities for our students say hey go catch an inmate you get twenty five thousand dollars off on tuition here yeah that and like maybe we could look into a uh, an internship as bounty hunters for ourselves like th this this could be a cool opportunity yeah. eric well here's the thing twenty five thousand dollars to go after a murderer Come on, I don't. That's not enough, is it? I I think I'd want a little more. Yeah, What's yeah. your price? Yeah, I mean maybe to go after the drug offender, uh, twenty five thousand for the drug offender. But if you want the murderer, you got to get it at least up to six digits, don't you think? Oh yeah, you know this guy's willing to kill. Yeah, he's he's done it before. I I, I mean maybe has not been convicted. If, if this is a jail, probably has not been convicted. Right. Yeah, he was waiting further processing. So as of right now, not been convicted of murder, but still on the run, charged with murder. You want me to go catch him? Alleged murder. Come on, back. We we need at least a hundred thousand. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good price. If if you were on the run, where would you go? I, I definitely again we're we're escaping from up here. I'm going to Canada. Yes. Nova Scotia. Greenland, Iceland, if we there. can get there. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. So somewhere remote enough that I can grow a beard and live in a cabin and people keep to myself and people don't recognize me. I, I picture something like did you watch Breaking Bad? No. Now, there's the one of the last episodes of Breaking Bad. There's a man hiding out in the woods in a cabin, and he's essentially in his own prison. And that's kind of how I picture it, though, if, if you're on the run like that. I mean, that's hard to you, make connections, hard to establish community. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, isn't that the way a lot of people want to live up there in Alaska? Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I, from what I've read about with Alaska, so in an academic sense, maybe, but. Also, I'm from the suburbs of Anchorage, yeah. which is just any other city. And people will ask me, what's it like growing up in Alaska? And honestly, if you grow up in the suburbs of a city, it's probably not terribly different from anywhere else unless you do very Alaskan stuff. We weren't an outdoorsy family in the sense of camping, uh, hunting. Uh, the occasional that, that moose walking through the front yard. We would get plenty of that. But <laughs> besides that... I. I, it it sounds weird to say, but Alaska is not terribly different from the rest of the U.S. in a lot of ways. Oh come on, you're you're destroying the dream of so many people that they think everything in Alaska is just completely spread out, and that I mean that there's no civilization there whatsoever. Oh, if you go outside of Anchorage, I'm sure there's plenty of areas where you can you can experience that, but that wasn't really. That's, that doesn't tickle my fancy, as they say. <laughs> yeah, mine either. I like the modern conveniences of, you know, having a toilet in a bullpen holding cell. <laughs> 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 you, 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 like, look at your wife and kids yeah. while you're on the can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Points at them. Crazy eyes right on them. <laughs> this, this is how you establish dominance yeah. in your household. Yeah. <laughs> no, it wouldn't work. None of them listen to me. <laughs> uh, well, well that's an interesting story and uh hopefully you'll keep us updated on any kind of developments it's interesting that they've been how long have they been escaped for so it's been they're on their fourth day of freedom fourth day of freedom that's it's uh that's a long time normally you know six eight hours they catch them but four of them for 
for four days. That's uh, that's an impressive. And if they've got to get away, well, that's an impressive run. You know, it's uh, sure nothing's been located yet. So no, no word on the Dodge Charger. Not not one of them. Um, so, anyways. Oh well, here's a here's a press release from uh, the Marshal Service. If you catch all four, or if you help catch all four, you will get a grand total of seventy three thousand dollars. <laughs> now, is that enough for you? No, no way. <laughs> did, did they price out each one of these uh, people individually? Like, is there twenty five for one, twenty for another? You know, like. 15 for another and then like 3000 for one guy. They they must be because <laughs> to have four of them with the grand total of 73,000. Mm. Wouldn't you be disappointed if you were um, they only want 6000 for me? Oh, I'd be so disappointed. <laughs> I was me. just thinking yeah, that. yeah, like <laughs> yeah, right? You want to be the top guy. You want to be the $25,000 yeah. pyramid guy, you know. Well, if you know you know that's the one that's taking the dump in the in the bullpen. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, he's the one staring at others. That's yeah. a dangerous he's individual. Just whispering twenty five grand. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep, that's that a, buys a lot of notoriety. That boys. is. That is. Can you imagine what the other inmates say when they get out of there? That dude's crazy. <laughs> he stared at me the whole time. But at this point, four days in, they could probably be anywhere in the country, right? Right. Right. Continental U.S. Yeah, well, you got to figure. You know, down down south, there's plenty of rural areas where they could hide. Um, who knows? Could be <laughs> they could be running around Atlanta, <laughs> you know, just hiding in plain sight. True, true. If you're smart, you go find the cabin, the unoccupied cabin in the middle of nowhere. It's it's fall, so people might not be going there as right. much. Maybe wait until after hunting season, and then. You got a spot for the winter. Or, you know, they're heading to Florida, joining some of the snowbirds, hanging out the villages. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> you could infiltrate an old age community yeah. and uh, drive some that, golf that carts it? around. <laughs> oh, yeah. Caddy. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. Oh. All right. Well, shall we get to the topic of today? Absolutely. The topic for today is contraband. And so we're going to talk about contraband on a holistic level. So first, let's talk about how inmates even get contraband. What do you think? How do inmates get contraband? Oh, comes in from the outside. So some corrupted staff and maybe through visitation. Or my favorite is when folks can get close enough to the institution and just toss it over the wall. Or they're, they're, they're yeah. folks that are modern that have embraced technology. They have friends that have uh, drones and the drones just fly it over the institution and drop it in the yard. Yeah, that one fascinates me. Yeah, and I, love I wonder how often they're able to even do that with, like, like if you're in the tower, do you have to go after the drone with a high-powered rifle? That is, yeah. Or because, you know, the newer institutions without the towers and they have the trucks circling. I mean, do they go after him with a rifle? What I mean, that's that's a fascinating discussion right there. How do you handle that? Uh, I would love to talk to a prison administrator about what they do for something yeah, like that. Yeah, because you know, <clears throat> we know with uh, you know, there are rules and laws about flying those those drones. But if you if you have your drone pilot license, are you allowed to fly over prisons and get video footage? Um. 
because you're you're technically standing off the institution ground, so you're still in public. You're not violating the Constitution, and you know Google still has images from above. So what's the difference between Google having images from above a prison and an individual flying a personal drone? over the prison but of course there's obviously the threat of them dropping contraband into the institution right and and do the prisons own the airspace above the institution like if we have google top-down images that's probably coming from some satellite images right right so it's way out there but but in in the immediate area above the facility i wonder what the we can only speculate on on what the rules might be there right but as far as how inmates get contraband uh you're absolutely correct we do see it on visitors visitors often are searched and some still try to bring in contraband if if you get caught and you're a visitor you get 86 you can no longer visit and you can even be charged if you get caught Uh, prison staff is the most frequent way inmates are getting contraband inside a prison And, and when correctional officers smuggle contraband inside of prisons they end up jeopardizing the safety of the institutions that they are there to protect, that they're there to maintain safety and security. And I'll get back to prison officers in just a second. But other ways are like inside the prison. So you can get contraband from inside the prison, stealing items from jobs. If I'm working in like a welding shop or the kitchen, a workshop, maybe I'm woodworking, you can steal some tools from there. Um, inmates will sometimes keep their medication. They will cheek their medication. And they will sell it later. Uh, They can conceal it inside their body before they come inside. So we find drugs, phones, and other contraband. And inmates more often do this if they know they're going to prison in the first place. So if they're, they're told to turn themselves in, they might package some drugs or other items in plastic wrap or condoms. And we don't do internal examinations. So there's only so much we can, we can cover there. Now, can I can I ask you, when you were working at the jail, and I, and I know you, you mainly worked second and third shift, did you ever work any visitation times while you were at, while you were working there? I did not. Our visitation was video visit entirely. Okay. So okay. visitors would come in from the outside, yeah. and they would sit down at a booth, and then it would be like they would be Skyping someone within the unit, essentially. So it's much more secure that way and there's no way they can actually pass contraband to someone on the inside yeah yeah that is that makes it a lot hard a lot harder uh, the prison i was at they had visitation saturdays and sundays so i never you know that was monday through friday so i never worked a visitation but uh, the stories that you'd hear on monday morning about what was going on a visitation and you know the searches or who was trying to hug for too long or whatever um yeah, that was uh, that was, and I wish I could have worked one of those days one time, but never got the opportunity to. Yeah, in my experience, that's been a frequent inmate complaint too. Of of oh, we only got a two second hug. We're supposed to get a five second hug, and it might differ between corrections officers. Like it, it's all discretion. Like who wants to enforce what rules? Yep. And Officer Hardass is going to enforce the rule of. You can only hug for two seconds, not five seconds. It, it, it's a mess. Right, right. Or <clears throat> when they do things like cut an inmate visitation short on purpose, you know, just to mess with the inmate. Um, all, all those messed up. Things. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Um, no, yeah, so I, I was just wondering if you ever had the opportunity to work that and bust somebody with some contraband while, while they were coming on visitation. But. No, nothing, nothing that's uh, unique or sexy or cool. Nothing, nothing like that. Um, have you ever heard of inmates being able to receive contraband through letters? Is that something you're familiar with? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, we, we know there was a, for, for a while, there, there were issues of inmates getting acid. Um, and one of the ways they were getting it is they were, uh, they were putting the acid in between the stamp and the envelope. So how did correction staff figure what they do? They just cut the stamp off, um, and then sent the letter. Um, so then they tried to find other ways to, to sneak it in through letters, uh, you know, anything they could to try and get something in, um, you know, my, my recent assignment in class where I had the students write to, you know, find pen pals on some of these third party pen pal sites. Now, Britt, I don't know if you know about these great sites that we have that are available. I've heard of them yeah, before. So yeah. My, you know, my favorite one is meetaninmate.com. They are not a sponsor of the show. So this is a free plug for them. Meetaninmate.com. Yeah, not, not yet. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. They might be our next sponsor. Um, but uh, so my, my students go on and find an inmate and just send a letter saying, hey, I'm a student in a corrections class. I'm interested in possibly learning a little bit about it. Well, it's interesting. Um, two, different, two different institutions, um, when they receive these letters, have called me about the letters to the inmates. And I've never had an institution do that before. The, first, the one in Texas, they thought, uh, they thought uh, and I'm sure it was just because of the envelope itself, they thought the it was possible legal correspondence, so then they wouldn't be able to read it. But I said no, it's just I said it's my students, and so of course then they they read the the letter and see it's harmless. But uh, um, and then one of the students uh, wrote an inmate in Utah, and they called as well, and they said, "Is this real?" And I said, "Yeah, it's for a class," and they were okay with it, no issues. But we started to receive some of the letters back, and it's going to be interesting to see what what a lot of these say is, is you know i think some of the inmates are looking for love or money and then so when they get something from somebody like a student that's not really looking for anything other than just hey how's it going um they might be a little disappointed but um you know we have gotten them back where there has been something that's cologne like on a perfume it's a, yeah exactly it's smelling nice for the for the students when they get it back but mm. nothing yet this year that that fun yeah, I, I love that idea of an assignment. I, I assign it as extra credit, and I've had so few students take me up on it, but I, I want I want more of that in the future. Yeah. Oh, it's great. It's great. So um, continuing on, though, uh, letters, people can soak letters in drugs. That's one way that they can get drugs. Uh, letters can be laced with, like, fentanyl or suboxone, and inmates will take these letters that have been soaked in whatever substance they choose, and whatever substance the person on the outside chooses, I should say, and they can chew up the paper in order to get high. And I've seen it before with methamphetamine, I believe, uh, was what I was told in, in Snohomish County Jail. And the, the woman who took it was bouncing off the walls, just rambling, not making any sense. And I'd, I'd had plenty of fine interactions with her. This was not one of them. So that, that's a way inmates can get it. And also 
people can throw it over the fences or over the walls. Drugs and contrabands might get disguised as a ball or even people can put it into like a dead bird so that inmates <laughs> can, can go out to the yard during rec time and pick up this dead bird full of whatever the, they, whatever the person on the outside is designated. Dead bird. So dead it, bird, it gets gross. But they are creative and yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, other ways, though, going back to prison officers, sometimes inmates will use coercion, like threats. Uh, like if an inmate already has a cell phone, for example, they've already got contraband, they can record an officer doing something they should not be doing, and then they can potentially blackmail the officer with that video. And they can blackmail officers over inmate-staff relationships. If I give an inmate a smoke or some chewing tobacco, they they can come back to me the next week and say, hey, you know how you gave me that? Maybe you could bring me something a little more. And if you say no, they can hold it over your head that you already gave them something and just have you over a barrel like that. Yeah. You're, you, but there are also. You're, you're sorry, in a tough sorry, spot. You're in a tough spot when an inmate's able to do that. But And they've, they've, they've been thinking about it and perfecting ways and learn from each other on how to try and corrupt staff a little bit. And once they have... And something simple, you know, something little, something you wouldn't think is big, like, oh, here, I'm just going to give you this little thing that I made over in the shop um, that they've got you. And, th and that's what they say to you. Oh, I've got you. You're mine now. Um, if you if you, you know, don't do this for me, I'm going to go to the to the warden about this for you. And uh, yeah, it's a uh, it, it's a you know, tough situation once staff gets compromised like that. It's really tough. Yeah, inmate manipulation is a very real thing. And for anybody, for any prison officer or jail officer, you're going to get manipulated at some point or another. And it may be something very small. Like like I I look back and I'm sure I was manipulated into giving inmates some extra rec time when that wasn't in the program. Something like that. But it could also be as big as bringing them in something dangerous or, or uh, drugs or cell phone or, or some kind of other substances. So the, it's a continuum. It's a, it's a large spectrum of, of how people are going to get manipulated, but you're going to be manipulated even if it's a, a smaller scale. And, th and that's one of those things. How, you know, the Department of Corrections is in a tough spot. How do we train individuals to not be manipulated? You know, how do you say, hey, we, we need to make you the, the perfect staff for, to work in an institution we didn't make it so you're not being manipulated. It's got to be tough. I mean, you 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 know, to have a, a little bit of street smarts is really important when you're working inside an institution just because it's, you know, you, you want to believe that these individuals are going to get better. You want to believe that they're trying and what they're doing is, is you know, trying to um, get to a better place. Um, but man, it's, uh, that's tough. That's tough. I had to try and prepare people. For sure. I, I, I've thought a lot about this. I think adequate pay is one. If you're paying your people adequately, then they may not necessarily feel the impetus to step outside of legal boundaries and, and say, oh, yeah, I'll do this thing for pay. Um, also, adequate training. I, I got a lot of training on inmate manipulation to help me recognize what inmate manipulation is. And from working with inmates for so long, it's made me much more adept at recognizing when I'm 
I'm being manipulated, somebody's trying to manipulate me, or when I'm seeing somebody else be manipulated, it, it becomes much more obvious over time because you see it so often, at least in attempts. So providing a lot of examples, providing a lot of depth training on that. So officers go in prepared. They, they know what they're looking for. Um, I read a book recently called Corruption Officer, and the, the officer was, he was essentially forfeiting his entire paycheck to child support and maybe alimony. And so he starts looking for more ways to make money other than overtime and falls into this trap of inmate manipulation. And so figuring out a better way for, for people dealing with financial issues, like financial issues are one of those things that I could totally see why people fall into that trap. I'm not, yeah, I'm not advocating for it, but it, it, it makes sense like why they do it when they're trying to make ends meet. Absolutely. You know, when, I mean, you're not going to get rich working at an institution, you know, it's just, even at the federal level, you're not going to get rich. I mean, you'll, you'll do well, you can live, but you're not going to get rich. You're not going to be, you know, driving whatever vehicle you want. You're going to have to live within a budget. And so when an inmate comes and offers you, hey, if, if you can get this into me, I can get you $1,000 cash. It, it sounds kind of, you know, seductive for these individuals. I mean, it, you can understand why, they, why they're doing it. Again, yeah, not justifying it, not condoning it, but saying you, you can understand, if, you know, why, why somebody might do this. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And there, there's a lot of money to be made. If you look at uh, the Leavenworth Federal Detention Center in Leavenworth, Kansas, there was an officer there, Cheyenne Harris, who she, she got charged for selling cigarettes to inmates for $100 each, $100 per cigarette. And then inmates resell the cigarettes to other inmates for $350 each. So there's money being made at each, at each step. And so the FBI swoops in, they, they question her, they speak to her. And she continues to make deals with inmates. And she went down for that. It, it's, there's money to be made. And there was another prison worker in San Quentin. They were caught selling cell phones for $500 each to death row inmates. And then the death row inmates would flip those for $900 each. That, that's pretty so expensive. there's definitely money. Yeah. That, yeah that's right? pretty expensive. I mean, it's... Uh... <laughs> but again, if they get it, if they're able to get some kind of return on it, you can you can understand why they do that. Um, so I I'm not going to name a name here, but if you look in the chat, I just dropped a little story about one of my old students, um, who worked worked in a jail down in Texas, and she was caught bringing in alcohol and tobacco into the institution, uh, into the Harris County Jail. So, um, yeah, so she obviously lost her job and eventually it was found that, uh, the thing that, that the, uh, DA was most upset about was that she was bringing in, uh, she brought in cell phones and that's why they ended up prosecuting her for it. Like they, you know, cause there, I think there's a lot more of the stuff that goes on that we, that the public, than the public knows about, right? Um, oh, for sure. And especially when it comes to things like cigarettes or alcohol or drugs, and those people are just, okay, you're fired. You're, you're not going to work in, in this setting again. 
But as soon as you have a staff member bring in a cell phone, that then creates something very different because all of a sudden uh, the, the staff and their family are in danger outside of the institution. That's what I was told. The reason why the prosecutor went after her is that, um, you know, we, we, our lives are now at risk because the, sta- the, the inmate is able to connect with people on the outside uh, via the cell phone. So, yeah, it's, uh, it, you know, it is something, uh, something that's pretty, uh, <laughs> I, I think, is worse than we can imagine. And then for a lot of folks, there's never ever charge, charges brought against them unless it's something that is considered really dangerous, like the cell phone. Yeah, and I I like that some prisons and jails have actually taken the tact of trying to make conditions a little better for inmates and mitigate the need for a cell phone. So at some places like Norfolk County House of Correction in Massachusetts, they offer tablets now. And on tablets, say you give inmates five or 10 approved numbers that they can call. They can call people from their cell. There's less of a need for waiting in line for the what is it, the three phones on the unit or whatever they have access to. And they don't have to, we we don't have to worry about them contacting a victim or contacting a witness, someone like that. And they're still able to contact their families. Now, one of the big issues we we still see there is it it can be some places charge up to like a dollar a minute for inmates to contact their families. And if we look at who's in prison, it's it's so often people of lower socioeconomic classes that don't have access to that kind of funding. There, there was a woman in New Haven. Um, she's a prison advocate, uh, Barbara, I forget her last name, but um, she's done some, some really strong work out there for prison reform. And she, I believe she had six or seven sons. Each one of them had been in the system at some point or another. And I think she was paying like $450 for her phone bill just to talk to her kids that's, uh, that's per outrageous. month. And that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's outrageous. Yeah, and you know these phone companies are just making a huge profit off that. So, you know, yeah. it's just it's sickening what they're what they're able to do in that situation. But yeah, I, I love Absolutely. that idea. And, I love that idea of the tablet, you know, and that and then being able to make a few phone calls. Um, you know, obviously you can restrict it, and if they have the tablet, you can still, you know, you can still listen to it for safety purposes. But man, that talk about allowing an inmate to have a better connection with their family or people on the outside who might be there when they get released. That's huge. That's huge. Um, yeah, for sure. But again, if it's only for the rich, um, that's, that's really tough. That's the problem. And, and with the, the costs that get incurred, it continues in part because the, the phone company, whatever the phone contractor is, they get money the prison or jail makes money off of it too. They make a cut of whatever the contractor is getting. And so the, the facility is making money. The contractor is making money. The people who lose here are the people with the least amount of resources. Right. And that sucks. Yeah. Yeah, it sure does. And, 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 you know, the, I remember one of my professors long ago used to call them the perpetual losers. Um, that's that's exactly what it is is that these individuals who really can't afford you know they don't have a network they can't afford good attorneys they end up they're so much more likely 
um, to end up incarcerated. And then when they're incarcerated, things don't get better for them because they're in the same spot. They don't have money on their books. They only have the money that they make while they're incarcerated. And that makes a huge difference in terms of, you know, the commissary that they get, the phone calls, anything. Um, and if now, if, if now we're in this situation where, you know, where, where we're trying to have phone companies make tons and tons of money off folks that, you know, less likely to be able to connect and, um, and, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, when, when they are released in society. So let's switch tracks a little bit. I want to talk about the most common types of contraband we're seeing. And one of my favorites to talk about is hooch. Hooch. It's oh, yes. Prison wine. Yep. It's it's alcohol. It's also known as toilet wine. It's also known as pruno. What do you think goes into it? What do you what are the ingredients we need to make a hooch? Yeah, we gotta we gotta bring some fruit. Got number one ingredient. You gotta get gotta get some fruit, gotta let it rot a little bit let it sit there for a while so that that's one of the interesting things the prison i worked at was was brand new so you know the officers would tell me it was easy for them to sniff it out when you compare it to an older institution so i remember one of the officers telling me who had worked at the the kentucky state penitentiary which is an old castle gothic like you know institution um, it was much easier for the inmates to hide it there because there were so many distinct or so many different smells within the institution, whereas in the place I was at, it was very sterile, um, it was brand new. And so something like fermenting fruit sitting in a, in a cell just kind of <laughs> wafted out and it was easier for them to uh, uh, to catch those, you know, the the brewers, <laughs> the distillers. <laughs> Yeah, if if you go into any prison or jail that's been established for a while, it will start to take on its own smells outside of the fermentation. Right. So that's harder to capture. Right, and it's very different yeah. than you know the the smells that Brit had to deal with with the you know dumper <laughs> dumper in the open cell block. But uh, yeah, the yeah, dumper. <laughs> so l- let me tell you how we make it. So here's here's a recipe. It, it can follow multiple recipes. Mm-hmm. First, we take uh, we take a pair of pants and we cut the legs off, of them. and then we line the inside of these now shorts with trash bags. And about two and a half gallons of water goes into each leg, and then you add five pounds of sugar. I've also heard of inmates using like Kool Aid or something else as like a, a sugar type substance. And then five cups of the main ingredient. This can be an orange, a tomato, whatever kind of fruit that you have available, and a cup of ketchup. And what happens here is the fruit will rot, and that allows for fermentation of this concoction. And if if we can keep it warm, even better. It's going to allow fermentation to occur even faster. And then once they're done, they strain it through a pair of socks, which I'm not drinking anything that I'm straining through my my socks. It's just not going to happen. What a snob. (laughs) (laughs) Look at Uncle Pennybags over here. Uh, so one pair of shorts is about one batch, which makes about five gallons. And so uh, inmates, uh, besides, I, I mentioned Kool-Aid, inmates will also use stuff like orange juice concentrate. They'll use bread to add yeast. They can use sweetener. They'll use tap water, typically. it. I've smelled this stuff before. I've never had it. Inmates will tell me, 
hey, it's surprisingly better than you would think, which is not like really an endorsement. No. Have I have either of you ever tried it? No, I have not. I, I mean, yeah. No, <laughs> I mean, it's um just just some of the crazy concoctions I've been around at certain parties where people have called it hooch. That those are pretty painful in and of themselves. So I can't imagine what you know the the inmate made hooch can taste like. All it's just it, it's got to be brutal. It's it's got to tear up your stomach the first few times you try it, and depending on how much you drink. Um, I mean, just think about those those ingredients again. You're throwing ketchup in there, really? Yeah. Do you want to drink? No, that? I I do not. No, no it, absolutely. But not. wouldn't it be fun to podcast it? Yes. Like, like if we were to have like a New Year's Eve special where we we toast hooch <laughs> I, and. Uh, I sense another Go assignment. Blind from I sense another assignment. I think you know, out, uh, independent <laughs> study. <laughs> Depending on the quality of the hooch the students make, that determines their grade. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those like brew your own beer classes, but like yeah. gross, right? And bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so, so that that's one way they get alcohol. I've also seen inmates do it with um, hand sanitizer, which they they filter it through like a tissue. And there's some kind of, um, I want to say like, what is it called? Ethyl alcohol. Okay. That, that comes out of that. And the two inmates who had stolen the hand sanitizer were bouncing off the walls. And so we knew something was up. And and they they did some time on lockdown after that. Yeah. I, I've never heard of that before. I mean that sounds like Tide Pod type of behavior right there, you know. Just, you know, really, that's uh, hand sanitizer. That, oof. Yeah. Oh, it doesn't occur to most of us to drink hand sanitizer. It's that's one of those like, oh, you would actually drink mouthwash, but worse, much worse. Well, it you know now, that could have been under one of the old, the previous administrations, you know. COVID plan, you know, ivermectin, you know, <laughs> getting, <laughs> getting light, right? We we're supposed to expose <laughs> veins to lights and drink ivermectin or some crap like that. But wow, I, oh, that's. Don't forget bleach. bleach. Bleach was on the, on the menu as well. Do we drink the bleach? I can't remember. I think that was what was suggested. Producer? Uh, I believe so. Mm, I believe it was drinking bleach. Huh. Yeah. Which sounds yeah. like no way that could not have actually been said, but um, yeah, you roll out the transcript and there is him saying we should drink bleach. What, so what, what's important to point out there is that the uh, you know the medical professional who was on the case did not endorse that in any way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can be thankful for that, right? Now, if we're talking about drugs in prison, let's move on from alcohol. There's, there's not enough variation in alcohol. Drugs, there's a lot of variation for what we can find in prison. Marijuana is a common one, but one that's really cropping up is K2. Are you too familiar with this idea of K2 or spice? Spice, yes. K2, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. But... Same idea. Okay. A synthetic mm -hmm. marijuana. There are these lab-created variants of THC. Have either of you ever seen someone on K2 or Spice? Yes. Yeah, I knew this guy who was really into both Spice and uh, Kratom. Oh. And 
yeah yeah he was he was all up on that it's uh it seems like um a distressing drug so my understanding talking to a chemist about this in um in the last couple years it's harder to detect k2 or spice because it's it's not just one thing it's it's different chemical compositions depending on what you buy typically like a gas station for this stuff and so it's harder for like drug sniffing dogs to detect it for that reason and it's it can have a variety of effects is my understanding so the ones that i've seen mimic mental illness there's a guy who came into our jail on spice and he's it, it mimicked like a severe mental illness and like someone in crisis. And then I saw the guy the next day and he was fine. There was no signs of mental illness present. But my understanding is that it can also mimic the effects of marijuana, some versions of it. So it seems like a real grab bag, which seems terrifying. And so if I'm right, don't, don't these synthetic, uh, synthetic, marijuanas don't they do the work on the same receptors as thc but they're a lot stronger isn't and that what we're concerned with here is that they have a greater impact um on the brain cell receptors is that i don't it, it's not actually thc so it, because it's not actual thc it can't be even detected on drug mm. tests so i don't know see this is where it would we, have the exact same effect this is where we need professor marriott we need the, the real expert Professor Marriott here to to help us with this because she would be able to wrap on this for for days about what this does and um, this is actually what she studies. It's what her dissertation was on. Oh yes, let's get her on a future episode. Yeah. Uh, so doing some research here, it looks like uh, most spices do uh, react on the cannabinoid receptor agonists. However, they are not THC or THCA, so they are very difficult to uh, to kind of figure out. Yeah. So some of the reported symptoms we have for K2 and spice are distortion, inability to stand, lack of control of limbs, and inability speaking. Sounds like a great recipe so, to for for when we go into class. <laughs> inability to stand. <laughs> <laughs> or talk it kind of sounds like like a, a good like nap producer yeah. more than anything like <laughs> Jeez. my goodness um so that that's k2 or spice um it's it's a more ideal drug for inmates because if they're able to take it without getting caught in the first place it's hard to trace back to them because it doesn't pop on drug tests but it's made up of a bunch of chemicals. We never really know what the effects or symptoms will be. And hopefully we'll get into that with Dr. Marriott in a future episode. Uh, but besides K2, we also have cocaine. We also have Suboxone. You ever heard of Suboxone? What is that? I have not. Isn't it the thing that you, uh, you take? It's kind of like methadone. They have like Suboxone clinics for people who are addicted to like heroin or fentanyl or whatever. And I think it gives you, it, it reacts on the op opioid receptors, but much less so. So it's like easier to get off drugs Correct. that way. So, so its purpose is it's this relief from opioid addiction. So you don't end up in withdrawals is the idea. And Suboxone is a combination of, uh, it's buprenorphine is <laughs> what it looks like. Um, and naloxone. Um, it's prescribed by doctors. It 
can also be abused though if if not taken as prescribed so inmates will often take it and sell it to other inmates my understanding from talking to corrections officers and officials about this is it often comes in a, a format like it, it looks like a one of those breath strips that you'll get that uh gives you that menthol goodness and ends up giving you some relief from opiates and this drug does contain narcan in it. it it has the active ingredient of narcan so it's hard to overdose on it but it can be done and that's one of the most popular ones that, in correctional facilities yeah. uh, according to people i've spoken with in administrations well, well here's what i'm going to wonder is like for as, as we're starting to become you know you're starting to get into some really higher end stuff and synthetic how much are how much are inmates paying for this you know this just seems like it you know the this is not i mean while it might be easier to get in because it's harder to detect but it just doesn't seem like it's something that's readily available for people who are visitors or staff so th there's a little bit of you know this isn't we're not just talking about marijuana here um you know it, it just doesn't seem like it'd be something easy to get so you know kind of like being our little bounty hunters you you're gonna have to pay a lot more so is there anything on how much they're getting paid to bring this in or how much they're paying for this kind of stuff? Uh, Producer Britt, you got anything on the on the wire there? I, I don't know street prices, uh, not on the street, in the jail street. Um, mm. So no, no. I'd, I'd imagine it's, it's got to be less than marijuana though, right? Because it's just like a, you know, a pale shadow of marijuana. Oh, wait a second. So uh -oh. in a 2021 study from the Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment, one Suboxone strip ranges from $50 to $100 in jail or prison, according to former inmates in Maryland and New York. On the outside, it's about $7 is the street value for one of the strips. So hmm. we're going to see inflated value. So only like seven times as wow. much. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So anything you bring to the inside is going to have this grossly inflated value because of the scarcity. It, it's like when you're stuck in an airport and right. you have to go to one of the restaurants at the airport, yeah. everything's going to be much more expensive. $27 hamburger. Yeah, yeah. they call it Chili's 2 because it's twice the price <laughs> of the regular Chili's. Yeah, it should be Chili's T-W-O. Uh, so besides Suboxone, meth has been popular. Heroin can be popular. Narcotic pills, prescription medicine, and of course, fentanyl. And a single, like a fatal dose of fentanyl isn't very much. It's anywhere between two and five milligrams. And if, if we were to make a comparison, like a single pack of Splenda, that has a thousand milligrams of sweetener, which would be potentially enough fentanyl to kill like three to 500 people. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the other thing, you know, what, what most likely is being sent in is not a very clean cut of anything you know you, you're getting you're getting some of the dirtiest um mixtures available and so it doesn't take much i would think to to really poison some folks there in an institution oh yeah for sure it, it, see if you're smart you you smuggle in some like oregano that uh, has has a, maybe a little bit of a smell to it, and then you pass that off. And if you get caught, you were just selling oregano. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and and as, as soon as you sell it, you PC up, you move to another unit, and uh, they they can't get to you. No, no, absolutely not. Uh huh.
But then, you know, if you get sent to another unit, you know you got to reestablish your connections. It's going to take you a little bit to recover from that. That's true. But in the meantime, you're going to be rolling in the dough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. From these oregano joints you just sold guys on the inside. Exactly. You're getting all the protection you need and all the ramen you want. Boom. Exactly. Uh, so besides drugs, we also have communication devices, which we've already gone into in detail. We also have weapons. What, what kind of weapons have you seen in prisons, Eric? Oh, the 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 boards. When you one of my favorite things is when you go into these institutions to tour them. You always seem to end up going, um, the going near the you know the lieutenant's wall of fame of of contraband that includes weapons. In they just have them, you know, this massive wall of all kinds of shanks and shivs and um, who knows what stingers, uh, whatever they can, whatever they can fashion. Um, but I mean, there's one, there's one that I saw in Louisiana. The best way to describe it is it looked like a damn battle axe. I mean, I, I could not. I'm like, where in the world did they hide this damn thing? Because it was massive. I mean, the blades, each blade was bigger than my head. It was huge. <laughs> so, what, did they, what did they construct the blades out of? Like, what's it made from? So you got to remember at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, they have a huge uh, um, uh, shop for them to work in. And when it comes to them, uh, so one of the fun things that we're going to find out when we go there uh, for the prison uh, rodeo is that they have a crafts fair. And the inmates make some of the most amazing things you'll see. They make whole bedroom sets and sell them to the public. Um, so they have all kinds of materials sitting around there. So they were able to get wood. They were able to find some metal somewhere. I don't know if it came from a bunk or um, pieces off of, of a car or what, but they had this and I, you know, I was just so dumbfounded by it that I wasn't able to ask questions about it, but it looked like a damn battle axe. I mean, it was both sides had an axe on it. You know, somebody goes swinging that thing. Um, it would be a lot of damage. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. And I, I got to say, one of my largest professional disappointments I've ever had is when I was starting at uh, Roger Williams University, where we both are. My predecessor, Dr. Chris Benton, he had been the head training officer for Massachusetts DOC for years, and he had left me a duffel bag full of contraband weapons in his office. I didn't see it or didn't know about it, and by the time I, I got back there to try and look for it, it had already been disposed of, oh. and so I, I missed out on all this cool contraband. Oh, that's terrible. It's a terrible loss. I did have a it is. I, that would have been fun. I did have a student who worked at the Federal Bureau of Prisons brought brought me one of the one of their uh, you know, shanks that they found one time. Of course it was, it was like, you know, you didn't get this from me. <laughs> so he said <laughs> that it was it was in a cell block where they found or in a cell where they found six or seven weapons and so he just kept one and brought it to me. But show it to the students. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it was great. It was great. You know, do you still have this? No, I don't. You know, because what part of what it was when I was down there in Texas, we had four federal prisons, four state prisons, and a juvenile detention center. 
And so there were so many of my students that worked in corrections down there that it was it wasn't uncommon for you know to get little fun things from <laughs> my students from time to time. So sick. Yeah. Uh quest question for y'all. What's the difference between a shank and a shiv? They're virtually the same. It's just that's just what they call them in each different institution. Yeah. Fair. Yeah, fair. it's like um some places will say prison wine. Some places will say hooch. There's a third name that I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but it, it's just an institutional difference. Culture. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but weapons are fascinating. Inmates can be very creative. Uh, it can range from like they take a sock and they put maybe a padlock in there or soap or other objects that are heavy and, and they can make a weapon out of that. Uh, we've seen inmates sharpen sticks or toothbrushes to have shanks or some kind of bladed weapons. They might find nails in the facility and use that to make something. They, they can use razors. They, they get disposable razors to shave with, and it's not unheard of that inmates have taken out the razor to make something with that. Um, inmates working in the kitchen can get a hold of can lids at times that could be used to slice people. Think about how razor sharp that can lid can be once you use that can opener. But one of the most interesting ones is inmates can use rolled magazine pages. So they, they roll up a magazine page, they harden it with soap and salt until it's it becomes like this makeshift knife or shiv. And if there's a shakedown or some kind of inspection happening on the unit, the weapon can just be disposed of. They unroll it and then they flush it down the toilet and no more shiv. So that's a way inmates have gotten away with it too. Well, and there was there was one um, over in Illinois where, um, and this is obviously still relevant today, in uh, Cook County at the at the jail there, where an inmate made a a shank out of the the wires from a COVID mask. And, you know, so here's something we we were we were given to inmates to help protect them from COVID or help reduce the spread. And they just, uh, of course, when their free time, tore it apart, and um, they uh, they're going to find a way to turn it into a weapon. But there's, there's you know, mentioning the bar of soap, and that's one of the ones that people are like. What do you mean bar of soap? We've seen those shaped shaped in the shanks, and they can use multiple bars, and like you said, harden them up and grind them down so that they're sharp enough to go into going to an ear or an eye or that's that's enough to cause a lot of damage yeah it, it constantly amazes me the innovation with which inmates will approach everyday items like for pens they, they typically get these tiny flexi pens that are maybe two three inches long and they find ways to reinforce these pens so they're not bendy pens anymore with just everyday objects like uh, toothpaste with um like like little bits of magazine stuff like that it it's constant it's it's for everything you see on the inside yeah yeah they're gonna i mean if, if it's something that could be manipulated they're gonna find a way to to use it to their advantage and or have it on them so that for protection whatever it might be yeah and so we also see drug paraphernalia on the inside of course for them to use drugs and sometimes we even get tattoo equipment now, what, have you seen any tattoo equipment before, Eric? And if so, what does it look like? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, 
you know, it was interesting. The the ones, the the stuff that I've seen, um, you know, to find the mechanics of of uh, of what they're going to use to make up, you know, an ink gun. Um, that just goes to show you the level of creativity that a lot of these inmates um, uh, are are thinking at, and um, you know, it's always the blue or, or black ink, and um, they 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 get very creative in terms of of how they're gonna um, steal the the motor, um, steal the motor from some type of um, of I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the things that they could use. I know they they can a lot of times we use guitar strings. Um, they get uh, paper clips and and then the the motor. Uh, where where do they get the motor from? They get it from clocks. They get it from uh, anything that they can steal that might have a small might have a small uh, in you know motor on it. Um, and uh, boy, they get that together and then they're just dipping it in the ink from the pen. And uh, it's uh, it's a, they're extraordinary where they can pull these things from. You know, anywhere in the institution um, that they can you know televisions um, and they just they get good at it, and once, you know, once you get in there, they they share how they how they do it all. Um, but anything to distract themselves. But that's definitely one of the one of the uh, sure ways to tell if if someone has prison ink or not. If it's all if it's all black and blue, um, and there's a lot of uh, you know I would call spill to the to the tat, um, meaning that it's not in you know. It, I think tattoos you have on the outside are far more precise, um, whereas there's a lot of bleeding that goes on in the in the prison tattoos, and they're far more simple um, than what you'd find on for folks on the on the outside. So, Britt, yeah, I'm not trying to call you out there with all of your black and blue. Ink. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fair. I've given myself some prison style stick and poke tattoos, oh, okay. so I'm totally guilty of this. I, I've very rarely seen as you were saying, like precise stick and poke type tattoos on from, from inmates on the inside. I, I've talked to a few and often it's, it's people who are just learning how to do tattoos. I, I, I'm sure that there are people on the inside who have done some fabulous ones and, and uh, maybe we do a future episode about prison tattoos yeah. as well, because it's, it's a very interesting topic. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah, I know, especially in Russia, there are some very, very talented artists in prison. They have a whole culture behind prison tattoos over there that's much more uh, deep than ours. Now, uh, in in running in my rundown of prison contraband, I, I do want to end on gum. In, in New Mexico, gum is prohibited. Inmates have used it in the past to mold the shape of a key. Think about that. That's that's crazy. That's fascinating. So, I've heard of soap being used for that yeah, as well and seen some uh, like poor facsimiles of keys with soap. So inmates, again, they're creative and they find plenty of ways to use everyday objects in ways that they're not necessarily intended to enhance their lives in some way or another. But But gum is contraband in New Mexico. Yes, just in New Mexico, to the best of my knowledge. That's... Now, 
do you two want to cut it here? Because I've got, I've still got another, this is about the halfway mark and I've got about four or five pages on how to deal with it. It's prevalence and impacts and the inmate economy. Yeah. Do we just want to make this a two part? Yeah. Why don't we do that? Yeah. Sounds good to me. That's been this episode of Prison Breakdown. Stay tuned for part two on contraband coming up in a couple of weeks. In the meantime, please like, rate, and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever your you get podcast your podcasts from. <laughs> this has been Prison Breakdown. I'm Professor Beckstraw signing off. And I'm Professor Eric Bronson. Thanks for listening.